This podcast contains uh, audio taken from several videos that were shown during the presentation. If you'd actually like to be able to view those videos, head on over to paulelmore.com and do a search under Stuck Week 2 and you'll be able to view those. Thanks. Okay, got it. Ready? <clears throat> You're listening to Paul Elmore. Paul Elmore. <laughs> Shh. It is scary sometimes to be known and it takes the first step, okay? This little comfort zone thing, as I, um, hey, I got this whole stage up here I can use this time. Picture a box around your feet. A lot of times people go, I'm gonna step out of my comfort zone because I wanna grow, I wanna change, I wanna get better. And so they bump up against that line and they go, okay, here I go, I'm gonna grow, ready? They step out and they go right back in. Wow, wasn't that great? That was just like, I was moving. Man, that, that's profound. That's not how we change. We, Here's the line, we step over it. Yuck, I hate this out here, I just, I hate it. Don't like it. But the longer you stay out there, and the longer you realize it isn't actually gonna kill you, your box gets a little bit bigger, and so you can actually have a lot more room to move in your life. And again, some people spend their entire life going, where's the next line? I don't wanna live a small life. Oh, here it is over here, and every time it's like, oh, I hate that, I hate that step. I just, I don't like it. It's terrifying, it's uncomfortable. <sighs> but it doesn't kill me, and now I can move around in my life a lot more. And they just, they start expanding and growing till their world is just huge. So, <sighs> that's what you get to do for two minutes at the beginning of every Monday night refuge. How about that? Let's close in prayer. Thank you very, no. Man. Um, I really am probably one of the luckiest guys that I get to come and, and, and share some things with you. But I also get to hear, I listen to the stories. And I've heard actually lots and lots of stories this last week. People going, here's what I'm gonna try. Here's the thing that's actually scaring me. Here's the area that I feel stuck in. And I am uncomfortable. Paul, you're freaking me out. This is, I'm not sure I can do this, but I'm tired. I'm tired of staying where I'm at. I'm tired of my world being small and I wanna make it bigger. And so here's what I'm going to try, and here's what I'm going to try, and here's what I'm going to try. I wish I could tell you the stories. I can't. That, those aren't my stories to tell. But if you ask, if you listen, if you maybe do that next week, hey, what are you going to change? Here's what I'm going to change. That probably would be smarter, actually. You volunteer that rather than, you know, asking some stranger what they're going to do. But um, what areas do you want to grow in? Again, kind of the three people that are here, people who are coming, going, I just want information, and then I'll make a decision. Some people are going... Okay, I think I'm going to entertain this idea and I'll try one small step. And then other people who are just, yeah, I am absolutely sick and tired and fed up and let's go. I'm, I'm ready for some change. And what's the fastest way of doing that? Figure out where you're at in those three. All three are okay. Um, a couple other front-loading things real quick here. Um, there was one group of people that I actually forgot to mention last week. Um, lots of ways we get stuck, but... Some of you who might be sitting here might be aware that some of your actions have actually contributed to the pain of other people, okay? Your children, spouse, family members, something like that. And you're going, man, I feel bad, I feel guilty, I feel responsible, I don't know if I can forgive myself, I don't know if I, this will ever change. If you find yourself in that kind of arena, in that, in that kind of group, then what I would hope you can walk away with from this series is a way to understand their pain, a way to understand their perspective on life 
so that when the time comes and it's absolutely appropriate, you can make amends. You can take the steps that are necessary to help them heal. Now, we're going to talk about control later in the series. You can't make them choose to move through the healing process. That's one of the harder things about this process is you might recognize you've hurt them and they might not be ready to forgive you or heal or move on or reconcile or anything else like that. That's not your responsibility anymore. You just simply make an invitation. You, you make an opportunity for things to get better and then hopefully they will take, that, take up that opportunity. So if that's you, there's a lot of good stuff to learn in the next series as well. Um, finally, two last pieces here. Um, tonight, maybe next week, maybe the following, but I think tonight I run the greatest risk of actually potentially triggering some of you, okay? Um, tonight we're going to talk about, um, there are three ways you can get stuck. Does anyone remember the three ways primarily? Uh, people are just mumbling here. See if you can hit there. There we go. Three causes. And the answer is? This is going to try this. Very good. So, yeah. Which one is Kevin Bacon? Curses and blessings, otherwise known as? Pygmalion effect. See? It was such an odd, weird, emotional connection. You guys can't forget that now. And every time you hear Pygmalion effect or curses and blessings, this picture of Kevin Bacon with a big snooty, snouty face on him is going to come up in your mind. So I've traumatized you there. You're welcome. Um, tonight we're talking about the trauma cycle, and there's a potential in some of the stories I share and some of the content that we go through. Um, some of it might actually bump up against some of your story, because I don't know all of your stories. I want to just kind of give a little caveat here, which says, if you feel yourselves getting um, overwhelmed in some way, if you feel yourself getting triggered in some way, if you feel yourself... Um, becoming significantly uncomfortable, you have my permission, okay, and everyone else's permission in the room to simply get up and excuse yourself, take a walk through the foyer, go get some fresh air. I want you to keep yourself safe, um, and, I, and I don't want anything to kind of overwhelm you or trigger you or, or kind of put you into a bad state. So again, tonight probably has a greater risk of that than the next following weeks, but um, does that make sense? Everyone kind of tracking with me there? Keeping yourself safe is the absolute most important part. Um, the other thing is an hour and a half is nowhere near long enough to thoroughly dissect kind of how trauma works. So this is going to be a 30,000 foot skim over the big pieces and again the mechanisms of how you actually get stuck, why it keeps you rigid or, or, or not able to move past the experiences that you've experienced. Make sense? So, you can ask lots and lots of questions. We're going to get through much, as much of it as we can. I think we're going to do pretty good, um, but we're going to just have to blitz through this and see what we can come up with. Alrighty? Everyone doing okay? Everyone breathing? Okay. Let's start it off. Um, I just watched a movie. Okay. What movie is that? Now, I know I, I chose this movie because of the strong resemblance. Um, and Tom Selleck and I, often people are saying, Paul, you just look as good as Tom Selleck. So um, it's understandable. That's from the movie Quigley Down Under. Okay, Remember that? Long time ago. 
I want to show you um, two clips real quick to start us off and get a context for kind of what trauma is, how it works, all those kinds of things. So let's watch the first clip here. Matthew Quigley. Elliot Marston, welcome to Australia. Well, sir, your men already welcomed me. Coogan, Mr. Quigley's luggage. Take it to the lodge. Mr. Marston, you said you'd pay me $50 in gold coin just for showing up. Well, you don't waste much time. Spent three months on a boat just getting here. You intrigued me, Mr. Quigley. 21 men answered my advertisement from all over the world. Canada, India, England. They just wrote letters. But you had a way with words. My advertisement simply stated that I wanted to hire the finest long-distance marksman in the world. Have I? You know your weapons. It's a lever-action breech loader. Usual barrel length's 30 inches. This one has an extra four. It's converted to use a special 45 caliber 110 grain metal cartridge with a 540 grain paper patch bullet. It's fitted with double set triggers and a vernier sight. It's marked up to 1,200 yards. This one shoots a mite further. An experimental weapon with experimental ammunition. You could call it that. Let's experiment. Whitey, take that bucket and ride out until I signal. <laughs> Tell me when you want him to stop. to eat something that far away. I don't know him. I never saw him before. He'd have to be a good shot, all right. About there will do. Thank you. 
quite certain, Mr. Quigley, that you wouldn't like the bucket a bit closer. Quite certain. Told you, only my Roy could hit a coyote from that distance. Very impressive. You're hired. Okay, so you're probably saying, what does that have to do with trauma? <laughs> Actually, nothing. That's just my favorite scene in the movie. <laughs> and it's a shame to show any clips from Quigley um, without seeing that one. But what it does do is it gives you a backdrop for the entire story because Matthew Quigley is hired by by Marsden there, um, Alan Rickman's character, to um, come down and actually shoot aborigines. And Matthew Quigley goes, um, no, I don't think so, and ends up being hunted by Marsden there. And so they, he gets taken out of the desert and he's almost killed and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And the gal there, her name is Crazy Cora in the movie, um, she's, she's the one we're gonna focus on because right now she's calling him Roy, Okay. He doesn't know why in the world she calls him Roy when his name is Matthew. Um, and she flips-flops between knowing him and not knowing him and what's he coming. Okay. So, fast forward in this. Quigley and Cora are now being hunted by this guy right here. And they are just about dead when a bunch of um, aboriginal people find them and actually save their lives. Okay. And then that's where this next story comes in. <laughs> you just wait till you try this. But you gotta guess what it is. That little girl is so darling. She sure is. Not as darling as Roy Jr. Oh, God almighty, lady. Not another Roy. Well, I don't know about you, but my stomach thinks my throat's been cut. Roy was hunting Seichens when the Comanches came. I grabbed the baby in a pistol and I hid in the root cellar out back. And the Indians tore up our sod house and I was real quiet, but then the baby started crying. I tried to shush him and suckle him, but he just wouldn't stop. One Comanche, I remember, he acted real drunk and wore my green apron. He must have heard something and started hollering and coming closer. So I put my hand gentle-like over my baby's mouth. Don't cry. Daddy will be home soon. The Indians found us, but they just laughed. They was drunk. 
Didn't want to hurt anybody. And rode away. And sundown, Roy came home, but I was still afraid to come out of the cellar. I was afraid of what he'd do when he saw I smothered our son. I gotta find some way to mend this petticoat. Look at that. the baby, put me in the wagon, and we went 70 miles to Galveston without stopping. He never said a word. Put me on the first ship he found. It was heading to Australia. And he said, don't want no woman that would kill my son to save herself. And he turned and he walked away and he never looked back. I know. Because I watched to see if he would. This thing is just falling apart. It's just... He just got a deeper understanding for her behavior just sits quietly and listens to her as she conveys the story, possibly for the very first time since she's been living in Australia. She was actually picked up by Marsden's men because she's a prostitute. She's just you know, being used by men over and over and over and over and over again. But you know her story. <clears throat> she's put into a life-threatening situation, in an impossible situation. She has her child starting to be noisy, and she does what I think could be considered reasonable, trying to get your child to be quiet. Her story lasts, and it plays out over and over and over again. There's um, another story. On a sweltering day in 1976, 26 children ranging in age from 5 to 15 years, were kidnapped from their school bus outside a small California town. That's them right there. They were shoved into two dark vans and driven around for 11 hours. The bus driver and 26 kids were put in vans and driven all over California for 11 hours by their kidnappers. They were... Um, driven to an abandoned quarry and then imprisoned in an underground vault for approximately 30 hours. This is what it looked like. If we go to the next slide. It's a kind of a moving van that was buried, completely buried. Go to the next slide. That's the inside. It had mattresses. It had makeshift toilets. The roof's caving in. All 26 kids and the bus driver were shoved in there, door locked and buried. They escaped and were immediately taken to a local hospital. There they received treatment for physical injuries, but were returned home without even cursory psychological examinations. As far as the two hospital physicians could tell, the children were all right. The doctors simply did not recognize that anything was wrong or that the children's progress would need to be closely monitored. 
A few days later, a local psychiatrist was asked to address the Chowchilla parents. He stated emphatically that there might be a psychological problem in only one of the 26 children. He was expressing the standard psychiatric belief at the time, 1976, not that long ago. Eight months after the event, another psychiatrist, Lenore Turr, began one of the first scientific follow-up studies of the children who had been traumatized. The study included these children, included the children from Chowchilla. Rather than one in the 26 children showing after effects, Turr found the reverse to be true. Nearly all the children showed severe long-term effects of their psychological, on their psychological, medical, and social fun functioning. For many of these children, the nightmare had just begun. They experienced recurring nightmares, violent tendencies, and impaired ability to function normally in personal and social situations. The effects were so debilitating that the lives and family structures of these children were all but destroyed in the years that followed. The one child who was less severely affected was 14-year-old Bob Barclay. Here's a brief summary of what happened to him during the traumatic event. The children had been imprisoned in the hole, a trailer buried beneath hundreds of pounds of dirt and rock in an abandoned quarry, for nearly a day, 30 hours, when one of them leaned against a wooden pole that was supporting the roof. The makeshift support fell, and the ceiling began to clap, collapse on them. By this time, most of them were suffering from severe shock. Frozen and apathetic, they were almost unable to move. Those who realized the seriousness of the situation began to scream. These children could see that if they weren't able to escape soon, they would all die. It was in this moment of crisis that Bob began or enlisted the help of another boy to dig their way out. Following Bob's lead, the boys were able to scoop out enough dirt to dig a small tunnel through the ceiling and into the quarry. Bob was able to respond to the crisis and remain actively mobilized throughout the escape. That's a term we're going to come back to. Even though the other children escaped with him, many of them seemed to experience more fear in escaping their entombment. If they had not been urged strongly to flee, they would have remained there, helpless. Here's a tunnel, here's a pathway out, but because their system was so overloaded, they would just would have sat down and stayed. Moving like zombies, they had to be ushered out to freedom. This passivity is similar to the behavior noted by military teams that specialize in the freeing of hostages. Often hostages will not move unless repeatedly commanded to do so. Trauma, in general, overwhelms the system. You're put into a situation that you just don't know how to get out of. You don't know what to do. And when that system gets overloaded, you, your body goes into a, a, a self-protective strategy, which is sometimes just don't move. Just don't move, and whatever's bad, whatever's bad happening to me right now will just stop. I'll make it go away, okay? You actually hear this oftentimes in um, um, children who have experienced sexual abuse, especially when they're at nighttime when they're asleep. Someone comes into their room, and they pretend to, play, to be asleep. They play possum because they hope, if I just am still enough, I'm going to be boring, I'm going to be uninteresting, and I am going to get through this as faster than if I am an active participant fighting my way out or something else like that. Now, oftentimes, an offender takes that passivity as what? Permission. So there's this mixed communication. Um, 
One other thing from the Chowchilla kids here. A study found that the kidnapped children suffered from panic attacks, nightmares involving kidnapping and death, and personality changes. Many developed fears of such things as cars, the dark, the wind, the kitchen, mice, dogs, and hippies. And one shot a Japanese tourist with a BB gun when the tourist's car broke down in front of his home. Again, when you understand their story, it might make sense. Because actually, the kids are kidnapped because there was a broken down car in the middle of the road that the bus had to stop for and the kidnappers jumped out of. So, when you have a broken down car in front of your house and you haven't processed trauma, what do you think? Danger, danger. Many of the children continue to report symptoms of trauma at least 25 years after the kidnapping, including substance abuse and depression, and a number have been imprisoned for doing something controlling to somebody else. This is the long-term effects of trauma. If it doesn't get resolved, it doesn't get played out, you play it out in some way in your system because you're, just, you're trying to get this, this resolution to the situation. So, why? Why in the world do we get stuck? We get stuck because of this reason right here. There's a novelty or a threat, something new, something you're not expecting, okay? I gave you that last week just a little bit, not in a scary way, but in an obscure way. Here's a picture of Kevin Bacon with a big snout nose. Okay, that's, that's a novelty, that's new. It's not a threat, but it's new, and, it's, and it has enough, enough emotional charge to remember it. When that happens, the, your system becomes aroused into the fight or flight kind of modality. Now, there's actually one more, the freeze modality, but we're gonna talk about that in just a second. But the arousal system gets kind of turned on and activated. I want you to see what that looks like. And I was trying to figure out how to actually do this without traumatizing someone up front here. That's a little unethical and just awkward for everybody. So instead of doing that, what I decided to do is we're gonna have a stand-in model for us, okay? If you wouldn't mind, please. This is what it looks like for those who are unfamiliar. Um, my volunteer's name is Slightly, okay? Slightly is probably one of the cutest dogs I've ever seen here. Come on up here, Slightly. Just hang on to him for a second. This is Slightly and this is um, Birgit, okay? Slightly's owner. Slightly really, really likes Birgit. Um, has significantly bonded to Birgit. Um, many of you didn't know that Slightly's in the back, did you? Incredibly quiet, relaxed, mellow dog. Very relaxed, fantastic little puppy dog. Cute as a bug, isn't he? Man, good grief. I'd like you to show you what an arousal state looks like. If I can take that, thank you. Right there. Who's he looking at? Do you hear it? Yes, I know, it's terrible, isn't it? He now, his system, okay, his ears are up and he's now scanning. This is called hypervigilance. He's trying to figure out what's going on because he's now being thrust into a novel or what he perceives as potentially threatening situation. And he, his system is now wired. He's not in the calm, relaxed state that he was 30 seconds ago, is he? This is what happens to human beings when we get put into situations and our body takes over when, when we're trying to figure out what in the world's going on. He's still whimpering for those who can't hear. Can you hear? Slightly. Let's see. Is he paying attention to me at all? 
I'm as interesting as nothing here. He is just going, okay, this is strange. But he's, his body's still in this aroused state. He's trying to figure out what's going on. I could keep him here for a long time, and it would actually stress him out even more. It might stress some of you out even. I get some head nods back there. This is like terrible. Okay? I'd like you to pay attention, though. I'm not doing anything actively aggressive towards slightly, am I? I'm simply standing here talking. But his, his state is not comfortable right now. It doesn't take much for someone to be sitting next to you, and you can be going, I'm having just fine, I'm doing great, and the person next to you is going, I am actually freaked out right now, because something in the environment, something is connecting to my story, something is making me incredibly uncomfortable. And if we look at them going, you're just nuts, we don't understand their story, we don't understand the reasoning, we don't understand what's going on. Birgit, come on back in here. Perfect, okay, slight. Just stand back there, right there. Call him. Oh, yeah. Who's that? Go on. Go on. And there we go. All is well in the Burgett family. Thank you, Slightly. Following so far, you know what that aroused state looks like? Again, your, your energy level's up, you're perked up a little bit because you perceive danger in some way. That's the arousal. He's, he's trying to figure out how to get into a more calm state. Now, we could have Birgit and Slightly sit back there as we exit out of here and you'd see an incredibly different dog because he is now, he's, he's, he's found something that works, okay? His giant pacifier is Birgit and he feels much better and he can just relax. Okay? We all have our things that can help us reduce that aroused state. Sometimes it's an unhealthy thing, an addiction of some sort. Sometimes it's another person. Sometimes it's a behavior. Sometimes lots of things that can kind of help, excuse me, mitigate that, that aroused state. But we go from the arousal, and then this trauma cycle moves around to the right side, click it again, and we end up having an unsuccessful escape. So if, if I held on to slightly, he would continue to get escalated more and more and more because he can't get away. I got, a, I got his leash. These kids were buried in a box under tons of dirt. They can't get away. Crazy Cora was hiding in a root cellar with her child because there were Indians out there that she perceived were ready to kill her. She couldn't get away. She was in this stuck state. state. She had an unsuccessful escape. She couldn't get away. Um, Children, children who have experienced abuse in some way, they physically can't overpower whoever it is that is doing uh, dangerous things to them. So they learn how to tolerate, they learn how to survive and adapt to get through that very, very scary situation. But when you have an unsuccessful escape and it rotates around to the bottom here to the next one, that creates this fear and this learned sense of helplessness. It is this, I actually cannot get myself safe. In their mind, they're now going, when I'm overwhelmed, when I am now triggered and scared and I can't get away, that now becomes a rule or a learned behavior in their life which says, I can't get out of any situation. So the next time they're put into a different situation than the original trauma, and they're going, man, this sure feels and looks real similar to what, what, I was having, what happened to me several years ago 
a lifetime ago, it still feels the same, I can't get out of it. And they are stuck. See how that works? And it's like, I, I, I literally can't do anything about it until we move around, and that immobilization, that, that freeze response kicks in. So when fight or flight doesn't work, we're given one more wonderful, beautiful gift, the freeze response. And you might be going, that's a, what? Nice gift? It's actually a wonderful gift because when we can't get away physically from an overwhelming situation, we've been given this amazing gift to escape mentally. And research has shown that if you are put into situations as a child, the younger you are, and you learn this wonderful gift called dissociation, you can just kind of check out of your body, you get better and better and better at it, and it takes less and less triggers as you grow up in life, so that now traffic, you know, just bumper to bumper traffic, or the grocery store can be, can be overwhelming enough where you actually will dissociate and you'll, you'll go through the grocery store and you'll go, I can't even remember being there because you weren't really there, okay? Your body was there, you were picking up the groceries, but you weren't there. It's a learned adaptive skill. But this immobilization and the fear and helplessness starts to create more anxiety, more fear, and it and triggers that arousal, fight or flight kind of thing again. And we start the cycle all over again. And then you go, okay, I can't get out of this situation again. I really truly must be helpless. I really must not have any skills to get out of this. More fear, more helplessness, more immobilization, and around and around and around we go. And you just stay stuck in this situation. Everyone following here so far? Make sense? Oh, you are my new best friend. Thank you very much. Oh, fantastic. Very nice. Again, we have to do a 30,000 uh, foot fly over here of what's going on. But here's some facts about trauma and kind of how it works, okay? First one, go ahead and hit the button. Fear plus immobility. That's the key recipe that happens. When you are overwhelmed and you cannot escape, when you can't get out of the situation, that's what causes the, the trauma response. We're going to talk about kind of what that looks like a little bit further on. But the immobilization, I can't get away, that's the key piece. When you have that heightened emotional experience like I talked about last week and you are physically stuck. That is what creates trauma. That's what keeps this energy kind of stuck in your body. What happens actually, next one here, it creates unresolved energy. We want to, when we are put into arousal state, our body says, get ready, get ready to fight, get ready to run away. And our bodies literally get charged with this energy, okay? And your heart starts going, your adrenaline starts releasing, all this wonderful chemical bath. Your brain starts taking over. It's just amazing. But if you are in that immobile place, you cannot get out of it, and you have to, you move into the freeze response, all that energy has to go somewhere. It doesn't just go away. Your body just doesn't stop. It just doesn't have any outlet for it. So what happens is, is you get out of that situation, and a year, two years, five years, 40 years later, you're put into another situation, and it has a lot of the same elements, okay, same ingredients, and you're going, wow, this looks really familiar, and you will actually feel that experience from childhood, or even a couple years ago, okay, adults can be traumatized, obviously, um, 
you will re-experience the emotions and the energy of that original experience. So you don't just remember the facts. Remember the story I told last week about my wife and the amusement park ride? And she can remember the experience, but she doesn't relive it every time she tells it. Someone who's traumatized actually relives it. They can remember that fear. They can feel that knot in their stomach. Their heart literally starts to beat faster. In my office, I have a little thing that goes on your finger to measure your pulse rate because as people are talking about some of this, their pulse, their heart rate just goes through the roof because they are, their body is going, I'm re-experiencing this, I'm re-feeling this, I'm trying, I'm moving through this over and over and over again. That is a, that's a trauma response, okay? Trauma isn't just remembering the facts, it's re-experiencing it. It's re-experiencing that energy, that emotional state again. Um, as human beings, we are wired to identify threats. You watched slightly do that. Okay, up here, Birgit walks away and he instantly is, turns to, okay, what's going on? Where'd she go? And he's trying to figure out, how do I get out of this situation? Our energy, our, the way we're wired is we we turn towards what is scary. We, we try to identify what's coming at us that's a potential threat. Um, one more here, or a couple more. Confusion from the threat. Confusion comes when the, th the, the thing that is threatening is actually supposed to provide safety and security. Okay, I'm gonna say that again profound confusion and actually a lack of trusting yourself happens when the person who's supposed to provide comfort is actually the person who's threatening to you. Does that make sense? If you have a parent, a child, a child is supposed to bond with their parent and find care and comfort and safety in a parent. Fair enough? Or a teacher or a pastor or a priest, or a swim coach, or a, okay, lots of people that are supposed to be safe in children's lives. But when that person who's supposed to be safe is actually the one who is doing something hurtful or harmful to that child, what do they start to ask? They're going, because inside they're going, I'm supposed to be drawn towards you. You're, I, I, as a kid, I'm supposed to find safety and security in you, but now you're not safe, but I'm supposed to be drawn toward, but I don't know. See this? This is called stuck. Because they can't go forward. They can't, they, I just, I don't know what to do. Some of the most significant trauma, some of the most significant glue that is hard to get unstuck is that idea because a child then moves to the natural common sense response in their head which says there must be something wrong with me. Because as a kid, adults are always right. And so they learn, I can't trust myself. I can't trust my feelings. I can't trust my perceptions. There must be something wrong with me. So, confusion. Trauma is actually subjective. Again, based upon your story, based upon what you have in your life, trauma is subjective. And two people can go through the exact same experience. One can become traumatized and one actually isn't. It isn't always based upon the experience itself. Okay, here's some of the things that make it subjective, okay? The event itself, there we go. How threatening is it? How life-threatening is it? How long does it last? Um, how often does it occur? Those kinds of things um, determine if, if an event is more traumatizing or less traumatizing. Two of the things that are most traumatizing, 
again, is childhood sexual abuse, okay, physical abuse in some way, and um, war. This is perceived idea that even society, nowhere, no matter where I go, I'm not safe because I'm in this war-torn experience. Um, next, um, the context of the person's life. What support systems are in place at the time? So if a child doesn't have a safe teacher or a safe parent, um, then they tend to get more traumatized, where if someone is having a, a, a painful experience happen to them as a child, but they do have someone safe that they can turn to, their, their trauma tends to be a little bit less. It tends to be reduced because they have the context of their life has a lot more resources available to it. Next, we have physical characteristics. So size, speed, strength, um, all those things determine if a person is more or less traumatized. Um, it's, it's incredibly interesting because I've actually sat with very large men. I mean, we're talking tough, tough guys, guys that can snap me like a twig. But they carry themselves in a way that demonstrates this learned helplessness, and they actually get picked on a lot because they don't know their actual strength, their actual size, and, and that they can actually, um, you know, stomp on somebody and, and actually protect themselves. So um, physical characteristics also include psychological characteristics that matter as well. Um, learned capabilities here. So this is prior experiences. Um, anyone who's lacking certain skills in life, again, can't put food on the table, you can't put a roof over your head, you can't do those kinds of things. Um, you, don't have, you don't have a lot of power in life. But if you realize, you know what, I actually have some resources here and I can get myself out of this. Think of it in a nature kind of setting. So um, there's trees around. I can climb a tree. I can get on top of a rock. I can get out of this situation. The tsunamis that hit, um, not Japan, uh, the one, uh, Sri Lanka, not Sri Lanka, is that something? Indonesia, thank you, Indonesia. Um, heard a story of a, of a boy that he saw the first um, wave coming in and it isn't, it's not like these giant tidal waves that you see in movies, it's just a large surge, but it just keeps coming and coming and coming and it sweeps away buildings and cars and mailboxes and it just, it's like this path of destruction. So he saw this coming and this little boy climbed up a tree, high enough in a tree where he escaped the first wave. And he's going, he's watching all this, he's watching people be swept by underneath him over and over and again. And he's up there for a day, just surviving. And that first wave recedes out, and just as he's coming down, a second wave hits. And, he comes, and it starts coming in, and so he climbs back up in that tree, and he stayed there, I think, three or four days, even though the water had receded. Because what did he learn the first time he started coming down? It's going to come back. So again, that occurrence piece. And so children just... Two plus two equals four, this makes sense. I'm gonna stay in this tree as long as I physically can because if I come down, something bad's gonna happen. Breaks your heart, doesn't it? It's like you just wanna grab these little guys and go, let me take care of you, let me fix you. And then finally, um, an individual sense of capacity to meet the danger. Um, again, we have internal resources. If I were to take a cup and I were to throw it at you real fast, instinctively, what would happen? You'd catch it because you are that fast. Well done. Yeah, that's exactly what I would happen to me too. Um, the capacity to throw up your arms, to blink, okay, the blink response, okay? You do that to somebody and I'm closer to you. Your eyeballs, they just naturally start to, start to react. 
as you get older, you have more of those options available to you. Again, you can block, you can re instinctively respond to certain situations. Children, young, 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 young children, they actually don't have those responses. Did you know that? They're learned. Kids have two innate um, fears that they're born with. Anyone know what they are? The two are? Fear of falling, okay? So if you take a baby and kind of do a little thing like that, they'll kind of throw their hands out, <gasps> kind of thing, and yeah, loud noises. Those are the two kind of we're born with um, natural. Other than that, you can do things towards them and they very slow response. It's, it, you get better at it as you get older. Um, everyone tracking so far? Any questions at all about any of this? Because we're going to start putting it all together here pretty quick. Everyone doing okay? Everyone breathing? <sighs> okay. Painful stories around this. I know that. Painful stories in this room. I know that. Pay attention to what's going on inside. What pieces are connecting to your story? I want you to be able to understand your story more than just a, a, a general knowledge of how trauma works. I want you to be able to get unstuck. And we're going to show you how to do that here in a little bit. Um, if possible, I'd like to pass out a handout here because we're going to go through the symptoms. How do you know if you've been traumatized or not? Okay. What does a traumatized person look like? What are the kind of symptoms that people go through? So it kind of comes in four stages. The first stage, early symptoms, this hyperarousal. Again, we saw slightly. His ears perk up and kind of this awareness of what's going on. Where is, there, is there danger around? Even if there isn't any danger, okay, you're kind of always scanning. You're always looking um, for what is a potential threat. Constriction. That is that your body actually starts to, I actually call it the turtle, okay? Your shoulders come up, your head comes down, and it's like you're trying to protect all the vital organs. Your neck, your throat, all these things. You constrict in. I, I see people in my office all the time. They will just ball up on my couch. They'll come down like this. Their legs will come up, and everything gets real tight. They start to constrict. Because if you sit like this, open, relaxed muscles, more danger, okay? Your core areas, all your vital organs are, are potentially exposed doing that way. And then dissociation, that includes denial. Um, yes, this bad thing happened to me, but I'm doing fine. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm doing great. Yes, I'm screaming at my kids a lot, but that's just because my kids are bugging me. They're not actually, they're just bad kids. Those are kind of the early symptoms when someone, early in the kind of the trauma process. Middle stage symptoms. Um, Hypervigilance again, intrusive memories or flashbacks, those can come in kind of, I talk about it either still pictures or movies, okay? You can hit the DVD and you can watch the scene play out in your head over and over and over again, or it might just be uh, one image of a particular situation, kind of a still shot. Um, sensitivity to light or sound, uh, hyperactivity, exaggerated emotional or startle responses, um, I have several clients that when they go and sit down in a restaurant, you will never, ever, ever find them sitting with their back to the, to the room. They will always have their back against a wall in a corner because they don't want anyone coming up and startling them. At work, cubicles. Um, difficulty sleeping, including nightmares or night terrors. Abrupt mood swings and then reduced ability to deal with stress. You just can't... Again, that stress response gets shorter and shorter. You have less and less capacity to handle some of the stress in your life. And so you get triggered easier and easier as you go through life. The middle stage or the next stage comes up here. Um, 
Panic attacks, anxiety and phobias, mental blankness or spaciness, kind of just, I'm not even aware. That's what happens. That's kind of the flip side of hyperarousal. Your body has been in such a triggered state. You've been, you've been so aware of what's going on that you just physically can't maintain that high octane kind of experience. And so your body now goes to the exact opposite. Okay, we've got to find this, this balance in life. And so if you've been really hyper aroused, then you're going to actually drop down to, you know what, I just don't care. And you kind of just miss things. You get kind of spacey um, or blankness. Frequent crying, exaggerated and dim or diminished sexual activity. Okay, you can go either ends of that. Often, often you see that, especially for women who've had a um, sexual trauma childhood. Um, they will tend to gravitate towards one end, which is um, hypersexual, acting out in a lot of sexual ways, or what is actually considered sexual anorexia, which is I'm not a sexual being at all, I'm disconnected from my sexual um, experience as a, as a human being, as a woman. Um, we kind of go to both ends of that spectrum. Inability or difficulty to love, bond, or nurture. It requires you to be physically and emotionally present with another human being especially a younger human being or even a spouse, you have to be present. You have to look in your eyes and see that you're there. But if you've been disconnected, if you've been dissociated, again, you're in the room with them, but you're not in the room with them. You're a million miles away. And it actually becomes really difficult to create genuine friendships, genuine bonds, genuine connection with another human being. And then fear of dying or fear of going crazy. It's actually one of the most common questions I have to answer in my office. Because I have people coming in and just, I feel crazy. I need you to tell me legitimately, am I nuts? Am I crazy? Because I feel all these things. And when I explain to them, this is probably what you're feeling. This is what you're experiencing. I can tell them where they sit in the restaurant. I can tell them what kind of job they have. And they go, wow, how in the world do you know all that? Because you're not an enigma. You're not crazy. You're wounded. You've been hurt, and we heal. We don't stay broken. We're not supposed to stay broken. Did you know that? We can get out of that, or that trauma cycle. It's just its such good news. And then finally, long-term symptoms. If you don't actually get to work through some of this stuff, excessive shyness, muted and diminished emotional responses, you just... You've gotten so good at not feeling that you live in a very, very narrow window of, of emotions. Chronic fatigue or low energy. You um, oftentimes will have immune symptom problems. Depression, detached feelings. That's kind of the living dead. The, I just, I'm, I'm kind of stumbling through life and nothing really has much meaning and I can't connect to anything and I just keep living and, and but what's the point? And they can't find any hope. They can't find anything to connect with. And then again, rephrase, it's kind of that diminished interest in life. That's, that is a real fast flyby of, of people who have experienced experiences in their childhood or even as adults that overload their system and they now go, I, don't, I can't get out of this situation. I'm, I'm frozen in it. I'm stuck in it. All right? Everyone still tracking with me? Making sense? What I'd like you to do is I'd like you to take that list that you have on the sheet there. And I'm going to let you listen to about a four-minute audio um, dialogue that I pulled off of NPR. It was an interview. So let's see if it plays. It's supposed to play. 
it's a long time ago now. I'm I'm a grey-haired <laughs> old lady at this point. But um, yes, I was 13 and uh, I was away from home for the first time in a children's hospital. I had a bone infection. I'd had an operation. I was really quite unwell. Um, in those days, parents weren't allowed to spend time with you in the hospital. You only had a visit of maybe an hour each day. But the Catholic priest chaplain of the hospital um, became very friendly and... Uh, he came to visit me and I was quite fearful, as I say, it was my first time away from home and he made me feel secure and I suppose also the way these men work, you know, they make you feel special. And uh, he started to come round in the evenings and just read to me because uh, I'd had an operation, I couldn't use one arm, I couldn't hold a book. And um, he managed to organise that the nurse who was supposed to be on the ward would leave for a certain length of time. And then he uh, he started to abuse me. He started off as a game, and then it uh, it proceeded from there. Um, it affected me in the rest of my life, you know. How long did it take you to tell someone? Well, you know, I went into that hospital as a very confident little girl, sure of myself. I came out an entirely different individual. I thought I was a bad person. As with most survivors of abuse, you, you blame yourself. You think it's something about you that's bad. I turned in on myself and um, I spent the next 20 or 30 years really suffering with very severe depressions. I was in my own home for about four years with agoraphobia. I couldn't go outside my front door. Um, I did get married and I, I have a lovely husband and son. But I didn't think to speak to anyone about it. But um, on talking to a psychiatrist, a doctor who was trying to help me uh, 25 years after the abuse... I began to realise that it was something that had been done to me. That was the first time I spoke about it, 25 years after. Wow. I read somewhere that at one point another priest told you that you were to blame for what had happened. You had disclosed this to him? Yeah, well, unfortunately, it was at that point where I had just disclosed it for the first time to this doctor. And um, he told me I should go and tell somebody in the church that th this man might still be a danger to children. So... I arranged to see the curate in my parish, who was somebody I trusted. And I, I had never stopped being practising Catholic because I thought it was all my fault. It, it didn't in any way stop my practising my religion. So I went to my local curate, and when I told him about the abuse, I started to tell him. He didn't really let me go into a lot of detail. He said, um, you probably tempted the poor man. And uh, he said, you're forgiven. So uh, that totally devastated me because it threw me right back into that pit really of, of self-guilt. So I left and uh, I didn't speak to another soul about it for 10 years. And unfortunately my abuser went on abusing for those 10 years. What happened to your abuser, Reverend Paul McGuinness? Paul McGuinness, um, <clears throat> he had sent me photographs and Christmas cards and things after the abuse, now perfectly respectable photographs. Unfortunately, he took abusive photographs as well. Mm. So I had some proof of our contact and he did admit the abuse. So eventually the, the police force here were able to charge him. He was charged with indecent assault and he was convicted and jailed. Since then, because my case went public, other survivors have come forward and it, he's been now convicted of abuse over three different decades. Has he passed away since? No, he's still alive. He's, he's in his 80s. Oh. But uh, his last conviction was only a couple of years ago. Um, unfortunately, he was uh, 
seriously assaulting a, a little girl from the age of 10 to 14. Everyone take a breath for just a minute. 13 year old little girl in the hospital, first time away from home. And she's told later on she must have done something to tempt the man. What are the ingredients? You have, you have kind of the idea again. What are some of the ingredients or the symptoms you're seeing either off of that list or why it tends to, why that experience sticks with her so strongly? Anyone want to wager a guess? Say it again. It was someone she was supposed to be able to trust. Yes. And how did he earn that trust? Reading her stories. Something completely innocuous, totally safe. Playing games, okay? Because she said it started out as playing games, right? And then... Again, that green circle that was up there, that novel or, or um, overwhelming experience. Because it's like, wow, we were just playing games, and then what just happened? That fast. What else? What other symptoms do you see either on that list or did you hear in that story? Phobias, yep. Her fault. Helplessness. Helplessness, how? Yeah. Yeah. She's in the hospital, physically limited. She can't, she had an operation, okay? A bone infection. That's pretty painful. And in that helpless state, she's now taken advantage of. Do you hear the recipe again? That immobility and that heightened emotional fear or that overwhelm? Anything else that just stands out for you? Depression, 25 years of it, 25 years. How often did she talk about it? She tried once, yeah, twice. She tried once and was shut down and told what? She was forgiven for what? For tempting him. Anyone want to put their feelings to what they're experiencing right now when you hear that? Outrage, yeah. Anyone else just willing to put their? I, I got feelings all over the place. Anger. Anger. Inability to do anything. About it. In, inability to do anything about it. Okay. Helplessness again. Sadness. Sadness. Depression. Depression. Confused. Yeah. One more. She went numb. She went numb for 25 years. She numbed out. Confirm the, the false, the false the beliefs false. that it's your fault, but now here's an adult, a trusted adult, even an advisor, a spiritual advisor, confirming the lie. Right. And so it gets you mired or stuck even more in the lies. 
And it doesn't take much, does it? One conversation, one time, and she shut up for 10 years. That's how powerful this stuff gets. Trauma definitely affects relationships, absolutely. It's actually a very common theme I see. I get couples coming in, and as I just gather information, we find out, and again, I'm not looking for it. I'm not, because I'm a trauma therapist, I don't go, well, let's, let me find trauma under every rock, but just in the conversations, they'll go, well, yeah, this kind of happened, and this is why I see the world this way. It's like, have you ever talked about that piece? Well, no, that doesn't really matter, really. Let me connect some dots for you. This is why your relationship might be struggling right now. Yeah, strongly affects the relationships. It's a powerful story, isn't it? Let's go here first. Oh, I didn't raise hand. You didn't raise your hand? But I'm going to call on you anyway, so you have to say something now. Just okay. Go for it. And look at, after she said this, how many people came forward. After she said it, Look at how many people came forward. It does. It takes one. It takes one person. We're going to talk about that, too, here in just a little bit. Any other thoughts about that story? It's a powerful story, isn't it? Yes, ma'am. She, she said something like what? I'm sorry? A fear of leaving her home. She was agoraphobic for several years. Yeah. Yep. We could talk about agoraphobia. We could talk about that's actually recycled fear. That's, that's the kind of the pinnacle of the trauma cycle because it's like everything is out there is now perceived as dangerous. So common sense goes what? I'm just going to stay home. Yeah. I would imagine it affects your relationship with God. It affects your relationship with God significantly. Changes your entire paradigm of, of life and the spiritual component is one of the most significantly affected. Absolutely. Absolutely. We could talk about that one story all night. Um, traditional ways of kind of processing through trauma. Okay, there's traditional tools that have been often um, offered up. And again, the story that I read at the beginning, the kids who are kidnapped, that was 76. That's not a long time ago. This field, understanding how trauma, how overwhelming situations affect our humanity, is 30, 40 years old. That's it. It is, it is an infant when it comes to understand, uh, an infant science when it comes to understanding how trauma actually works. And in the last 40 years, we've made significant, significant steps in it. But prior to a lot of the newer stuff that's come out within probably the last 10 years or so, um, the most traditional ways of going through it were talk therapy, which is content-driven. Let's just re go over the experience again, and when you can just talk about it, that'll make it all go away. Now, I want you to hear me very, very, very clearly, okay? Being able to tell the story first is an incredibly important first step. You have to be able to put a context to your story. Doesn't mean you have to dig up every detail, but one of the most profound or strong lessons um, people who are traumatized, they learn is, and we just heard it in this last story, is you're not allowed to talk. You have to keep it quiet. You have to keep it secret. 
Because if you don't keep it secret, bad things are going to happen to you, bad things are going to happen to your abuser, and especially if you're, uh, the abuser, the offender, is intentional about trying to keep you quiet, then they have a lot of threats that are offered up. If you say something, I'm going to hurt another family member, a pet, toys, lots of stuff. And it will be your fault if they get hurt because you talked and it keeps you stuck. It keeps you locked in that cycle. And so being able to actually tell the story for the first time can be blinding fear. It is incredibly uncomfortable at times. And so being able to, to even just say, yes, this happened, is the first step in saying, I'm no longer going to take the responsibility of this offender. I'm no longer going to keep it secret. And there will be consequences to me telling. There's no doubt about that. But I will not, I will not hold the responsibility for that anymore. So talk is important, but it is only the very first step. Okay, And actually, technically, it's not the first step. It's probably kind of down the road a little bit um, with the new stuff. But this is a traditional way. Is We're just going to talk about it because when you talk about stuff, um, primarily the goal was to gain understanding of why. Why did this happen? This woman, in the last clip we just listened to, it happened because she tempted him. That was the why, that was the lie, and she has to now move into a place that says, wait a second, I, I don't believe that anymore. But that tends to be the goal of talk therapy, and if you understand why the thing happened, you can now move through it. That was the old reasoning. That's about as commonsensical as going, I take my car to the mechanic because it's not running right, and the mechanic goes, you've got a bad transmission. And you go, excellent, I understand now, thank you very much. And you get in your car and drive away, right? Understanding the problem isn't actually fixing the problem. It's important because you don't want to, you know, play around the carburetor if that's not the problem. So you have to have, be able to tell the story and you have to have an understanding why but that doesn't go far enough. And that's what I want to offer you tonight is a way to actually take the first steps to legitimately get unstuck because just talking about it isn't enough. I want to show you what the new stuff, what the new research, the much better tools, much better tools to actually start shifting this stuck feeling. Yes? Right. At what point can you indicate that they're actually prepared to deal with all of those emerging emotions yep. and they're going to move through it versus staying stuck and just... And re-experiencing? Exactly. In fact, that's some of the research showing is um, just talking about it actually re-traumatizes the client. <laughs> There has to be something else. And so, again, someone who can move through this in, in, in better, with better tools, with, with better understanding of how we work um, physiologically as well, you can now go, you can talk this much into your story without you becoming overwhelmed again, and we'll, we'll stay in that safe zone, and then you can take one more step, and that doesn't get overwhelmed because we don't want to re-traumatize. Does that make sense? Right. So are there studies that are currently underway where they're looking at how the brain activity changes when somebody's yeah. living or they're yep. 
questioning about kind of um, brain mapping and brain studies and stuff like that. And they put people in um, a functional MRI. So they're awake and they ask them questions and they watch what parts of their brain light up and stuff. And so this is, this is a continuing um, emerging field where there's all sorts of new information coming on. Yes, so there's lots of stuff that's being discovered. Um, but what they're discovering is what we're gonna be talking about, kind of the steps I'm gonna encourage you guys to consider that actually help get unstuck. So we'll kind of take us a little further down that road. Um, here's where we come to the solution part. Everyone tracking with me so far, kind of how trauma gets you stuck, what it looks like, what it feels like. Some of you might be sitting here right now going, I know that too well. I, can, I, I absolutely know that experience too well. Any other questions real quick before we kind of jump into the solution? Okay, very good. Then here's the goals to getting unstuck, okay? Or how to break the trauma cycle. We wanna move from a place of fixity, okay? Fixedness, fixity, and helplessness, which is kind of this next picture. That's what it looks like. See that constriction? There's kind of that fetal position. That's that protecting of all those vital organs. We wanna move from that posture. Believe me, you can go to work every day and, and feel that inside even though you're not in that exact posture. You are just, you're just wrapped up inside. We wanna go from that to a state of flow, vitality, and wholeness. Kind of looks like that, where we have all this energy moving, have all this kind of process going through our body. Um, animals in the wild have a, have a natural ability to discharge and come out of the freeze response, okay? Here's what it looks like. I'm gonna show a video here, so this one works. Apparently, let's see what discharging um, energy looks like. That's the beginning of the video. So if it plays, that's very weird, isn't it, Chelsea? I don't know what in the world's going on. Nope. That's a video right there. That's the beginning of it. So if you have, can you do the swap and find the polar bear? She's dancing upstairs. It's fun to watch. You should see it. She's unplugging and plugging things, reconnecting. It's like rewiring the space shuttle. Yes, Chelsea, are you traumatized? Okay. There we go. I'm gonna kind of walk you through this as we play. You can hit play, yep. So this is, um, So just turn it down just a skosh. They're just going to tag a polar bear. They're not doing anything bad to it. They're just going to do a tag and do a study of it. So you think it might be traumatizing for a polar bear to be chased by a helicopter? And he is in the flight response. He's running away. Look at the size of those paws. That is a big animal. Can you pause it for just a second, Chelsea, right there? Look at the teeth on that thing. My goodness. That is, that is bread to eat things. Just choppers. But 
What state is the polar bear in currently, right now? Here's what I heard. Unawareness, actually that's not true. The polar bear is aware, but it's what? Sedated, helpless, immobile, okay? So it's actually still picking up, it can hear, it's aware of everyone walking around it, but the, but the um, tranquilizer shuts down its, its nervous system and it can't respond, okay? Very important, okay, keep going. Just good grief. There's a breath. There's a breath. Perfect, right there. So, here's a slow motion version of it. So, pause it, it says completing of the fleeing response right there. It, its body was activated. The running away, all that energy in its body was triggered and it was trying to get away. And then when it got a tranquilizer shot in its butt, it now had a chemical thing that's, that repressed or suppressed all of those abilities for those muscles to, do, to respond that way. And as the tranquilizer starts to wear off, animals, because they don't have this big lumpy part of their brain right here, which tells them, I'm gonna look silly, I'm gonna look stupid, I'm gonna look embarrassing, I'm gonna look awkward if I actually start to respond this way. We human beings have learned to suppress that because we don't, don't wanna look bad in front of people. Animals, when they're coming out of that helpless state, their bodies continue to move through this cycle. And so again, hit play, and in slow motion, it's running, okay? It's still kind of running. And watch its mouth. That's the fight response. That's trying, it's trying to attack whatever is threatening it. And then finally, all of this energy shows up in this great big deep breath that it has. It Again, you can hear it in children who are too young to suppress kind of their, their expression of emotions when you cry really, really hard and it's that kind of that end of the <gasps> right? Kids do it all the time. That's what, that's what we're supposed to do. That right there is the key to starting to get unstuck is you give yourself permission to respond in the ways that you never had a chance to respond. And so sometimes that means stepping into or recreating a scenario where you can, in a safe environment, remember the experience, experience or re-experience the emotions and the feelings, but then rewrite the ending of the story. So you can now go, I'm allowed to say what I wasn't allowed to say. I'm allowed to shake and tremble when I wasn't allowed to shake and tremble because I learned if I did that, I would embarrass my whoever. And you learn to let your body move through that. And as you get out of your own way, your body will start to move through this process and actually start to heal. The energy discharges, and this is the exit ramp off of that trauma cycle. You no longer stay going back around into that helplessness and immobility anymore. 
you get in that arousal state, that fight or flight, but you don't move into a freeze response. You move into active stuff. The one child who was not traumatized or the less traumatized in the kids who were buried, who were they? There's two of them that had the least amount of trauma symptoms. Again, blah, blah, blah. What? The w- right. The ones that took actions. The ones, the ones who leaned on the post and the thing kind of fell over and he started digging. He is now no longer immobile, is he? His body's activated and he's not in the I can't get myself out state. He's in the I'm actually doing something to free myself. And so he in the moment, discharges the energy and digs himself out and has the, has the presence of mind. 14 years old, 14 years old, he can pull all the other kids out of that, out of that box where they were stuck. He, he leads all the rest of them out of there. And over time, because he moved all the way through the trauma cycle, he still had some traumatic symptoms, but much, much um, less so because he worked through it in the moment. The rest of the kids never had a chance to work through it. So that makes it more clear why those young girls who were abducted for 10 years yep. and stayed stuck. Yep. Because yep. they were in that freeze, that immobility response. Um, I cut out another article. Again, there's just so many resources that an hour and a half can't do it justice. Um, but there was a, a boy who was kidnapped um, and again, it was one of these long-term kidnapping kind of scenarios. And, and he, his parents actually created a website with, have you seen this boy? Here's what he would look like. If you know any information, blah, 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 all this stuff. And the boy who was kidnapped actually went onto the website and, and emailed them saying, if you, had, if you find your son, would you actually want him back kind of questions. He was testing because he, he was such in a freeze response that he couldn't email them and say, it's me, come get me, here's my address. Because he knew his address, he knew where he was, but he was in that, will you want me back? Because what was he believing? It's my fault. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it profound? And when he was found, and they, again, they came up with a story, they, they found out his whole story, and they, he told them this. I mean, can you imagine the parents? It's like, we missed it. Lots and lots of just layers to these stories. It's really profound. Um, immobility without fear is okay and non-trauma producing. Can we do one more, Chelsea? Let's see if this one, okay? This one's called How to Deactivate a Cat. <laughs> Handy for those who have cats at home. Aww. Let's see if we can see it. I don't know what's going on. This is, we're going to have to figure this one out. It's in the dark. Yes, there it is. Yes. Pay attention to your emotional state right now, okay? Cute little kitten doing what little kittens do, destroying your screen door. Notice the energy of the, of the kitten. What state is the kitten in? 
hyper, no, he's not hyper, yeah, he's, he's just very active, but he's not hyper aroused, he's not scared, he's not, he's not uncomfortable, he's just a kitten. It's like, you've heard that phrase, trying to herd cats? This is why. Everyone's going, what's going on? How do you do that? So, clothespin on a cat. Hold on a second, oh, not quite, so let's just get it repositioned here. And this is technically called scruffing, for those who want to know. And you just turned off your cat. <laughs> and watch. Ta-da! All better. <laughs> Let's do it again, everyone. Here we go. And thunk. <laughs> and what state is he in? Oh. See? There we go. He does it about nine more times. All I had was a dog. I couldn't find anyone to bring in their cat. We could have tried it. Sorry. All right, you can stop it there, Chelsea. He just does it over and over and over again. But yep. Exactly. So Mama Cat comes and just grabs the kitten by that little nerve cluster in the back of the scruff there, and the cat goes limp, not traumatized, but immobile. So when you have immobility without fear, no problem. No problem whatsoever. It's when that combination, that's what creates the trauma and that's what gets you stuck. Animals are designed to go into um, a freeze response or a, or a, a immobile state, but they don't get freaked out when, when they're safe. Um, the Jurassic Park principle. I tell people all the time that people in, who were in Jurassic Park weren't traumatized, even though they had velociraptors and T-Rexes and everything else coming after them. Why weren't they traumatized? They were taking action. They were climbing fences. They were running away. They were kicking them in the head. They were, they were constantly moving, except for one guy. Do you remember the, the guy who froze? <laughs> yeah, not for long. Where did he run to? The bathroom, right? Because he just overwhelms, he leaves the kids in the car. The little porta potty thing gets knocked over, and he's sitting there on the throne. Because when you get really scared, your bowels evacuate, all those kinds of things, and he just freezes. And then he's T Rex snacky kind of thing. Um, so, as long as you can move, as long as you can fight, as long as you can run away, as long as you're activated and still kind of discharging that energy you actually don't get traumatized. Um, this is what the chart could look like. So we move from immobilization to the next stage, which is that arousal, that fight or flight piece, which now moves to a success, 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 success. I'll clean that afterwards. Successful escape. It actually works. You figure out, I can dig my way out of this box. I can say no to this person for the first time in my entire life. I can disrupt the family rules. I can stand up to my boss. I can stand up and walk out of a room. I can say what it needs to be said. A success, successful escape, man, that's a long night. Finally, it gets to empowerment. You now learn, I did that once, I can do it again, and again, and again, and again. That's what, that's what successful um, processing of trauma actually looks like. Okay, we're doing good on time. I am just tickled because that doesn't usually happen.
On July 5, July 5th, in the late 1980s, a man walked into a convenience store at 6.30 in the morning. Holding his finger in his pocket to simulate a gun, he demanded that the cashier give him the contents of the cash register. Having collected about $5 in change, the man returned to his car where he remained until the police arrived. When the police arrived, the young man got out of his car with his finger again in his pocket, announced that he had a gun and that everyone should stay away from him. Luckily, he was taken into custody without being shot. At the police station, the officer who looked up the man's record discovered that he had committed six other so-called armed robberies over the past 15 years, all of them at 6.30 in the morning, all of them on July 5th. Upon learning that the man was a, vet, a Vietnam veteran, the police surmised that this event was more than mere coincidence. They took him to a nearby VA hospital where, they, where um, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, he's kind of the grandfather of trauma, trauma research right now, he had the opportunity to speak with him. Van der Kolk um, asked the man directly, what happened to you on July 5th at 6.30 in the morning? He responded directly, while he was in Vietnam, the man's platoon had been ambushed by the Viet Cong Everyone had been killed except for himself and his friend, Jim. The date was July 4th. Darkness fell, and the helicopters were unable to evacuate them. They spent a terrifying night together, huddled in a rice paddy, surrounded by the Viet Cong. At about 3.30 in the morning, Jim was hit in the chest by a Viet Cong bullet. He died in his friend's arms at 6.30 on the morning of July 5th. After returning to the States every July 5th that he did not spend in jail, the man had reenacted the anniversary of his friend's death. In the therapy session with Vanderkolk, the vet experienced grief over the loss of his friend. He then made the connection between Jim's death and the compulsion he felt to commit the robberies. Once he became aware of his feelings and the role the original event had played in driving his compulsion, the man was able to stop reenacting this tragic incident. We're wired to find resolution. He didn't know he was doing this. He didn't put the pieces together every July 5th at 6.30. It wasn't a conscious choice where he goes, well, here it is again, I better get to it. There was just this compulsion that says, I feel like I need to do this because his body's going, I want to find resolution to this. And so he reenacts it. He plays it out over and over and over again. We can actually look at a lot of criminal behavior a lot of inappropriate behavior that is actually sometimes even condemned within religious communities, within therapeutic communities, and go, if we know the story and we put the pieces together, man, you're trying to figure out or work through what happened to you in this earlier helpless state. That's the key, okay? I want you to be able to, if trauma is one of the reasons why you're stuck, and you're aware of that, you know those pieces of your story, instead of being reactive to those, to those reenactment kind of scenarios, you, you very intentionally go, I need to work this out, I'm gonna find a safe setting to work this out in, and I'm going to intentionally try to figure out how to change this so that I'm not getting arrested, I'm not spending time in jail, I'm not doing things that are dangerous to me personally, interpersonally, relationally, all those kinds of things. You certainly can. What was the connection between the robberies and the Vietnam experience? Yeah. Why, why did he go through that kind of behavior? Did it have an 
By staging the robberies, the man was reenacting or recreating the firefight that had the results that had resulted in the death of his friend, as well as the rest of his platoon, by provoking the police to join in the reenactment, unwilling, they didn't know it, but they played the roles. The vet had orchestrated the cast of characters needed to play the role of the Viet Cong. Here's someone who's trying to kill him, because they show up with guns, because he's, he's an armed robber. He did not want to hurt anyone, so he used his finger instead of a gun. He then brought the situation to a climax and was able to elicit the help he needed to heal his psychic wounds. He was, he was then able to resolve his anguished grief and guilt about his buddy's violent death and the horrors of war. He blamed himself. He's sitting there in a rice paddy all night long. Children were driven around for 11 hours not knowing what's going to happen. They were already in a frozen state well before they were buried in a box. That time frame, just that what's going on, what's going to happen. We play out worst case scenarios and when the, you can't escape from a moving car, you're, just, you're frozen, you're stuck. So he's, he had to recreate all the cast of characters to make this happen. Here's what it can look like for this solution. Sammy had been spending the weekend with his grandparents where I am their guest. This is the author Peter Levine, one of my favorite guys. He's, um, he's the guy who did the polar bear video and started to put these pieces together of this activity that your body, this energy that your body needs to release. Um, and so he's actually come up with a whole way of processing through that physiologically. So he's the author. He's telling the story. Um, Sammy is being an impossible tyrant, aggressively and relentlessly trying to control his new environment. Nothing pleases him. He displays a foul temper every waking moment. When he is asleep, he tosses and turns as if wrestling with his bedclothes. This behavior is not entirely unexpected from a two-and-a-half-year-old whose parents have gone away for the weekend. Children with separation anxiety often acted out. We saw separation anxiety earlier. In who? In Slightly. That's separation anxiety. Okay? Your body gets into a charged state. Sammy, however, had always enjoyed visiting his grandparents, and this behavior seemed extreme to them. They confided to me that six months earlier, Sammy fell off his high chair and split his chin open. Bleeding heavily, he was taken to the local emergency room. When the nurse came to take his temperature and blood pressure, he was so frightened that she was unable to record his vital signs. The two-year-old child was then strapped down in a pediatric papoose. Anyone know what that is? It's a board about the size of a little kid that has straps to strap down the arms and the legs because the doctors are mean. Why? So they can hold him steady while they stitch up his head. When I was six years old, I fell off a um, jungle gym and snapped both bones in this wrist. I can still remember seeing the x-ray. It was fantastic. Bones looked like that. It was just beautiful break. Um, for, it, for it to get set, okay, six years old, um, for it to be set, I had to be completely knocked out. I was, I was completely knocked out, and I woke up with a full cast on my arm. Um, they, they do pediatric papooses now. My, my now 16-year-old, when he was about three, um, he fell down and hit his head on a really sharp rock in the front yard and split his head open right here. And I can remember sitting in the emergency room with him, gaping hole, big enough you could put a large pencil eraser into it, just this massive hole right in the middle of his head. And he's sitting there playing happy, talking with me. He's doing fine. But they got to stitch this thing up now. And so they put him into a pediatric papoose. Kids don't like pediatric papooses. Why? They're immobilized, and we're not built for immobilization, right? 
And can you rationalize with a three-year-old? No. Can you explain it? Two-and-a-half-year-old, you can't explain it. Um, with his torso and legs immobilized, the only part of his body he could move with his, was his head and neck, which naturally he did as energetically as he could. The doctors responded by tightening the restraints and immobilizing his head with their hands in order to suture his chin. After this upsetting experience, mom and dad took Sammy out for a hamburger and then to the playground. His mother was very attentive and carefully validated his experience of being scared and hurt. Good parents, they're not doing anything wrong, looking out for his welfare. Soon, all seemed forgotten. However, the boy's overbearing attitude began shortly after this event. Could Sammy's tantrums and controlling behavior be related to his perceived helplessness from this trauma? I discovered that Sammy had been to the emergency room several times with various injuries, though he had never displayed this degree of terror and panic. When his parents returned, we agreed to explore whether there might be a traumatic charge still associated with this recent experience. We all gathered, gathered in the cabin where I was staying. With parents, grandparents, and Sammy watching, I placed his stuffed Pooh Bear on the edge of a chair in such a way that he immediately fell to the floor. We decided that it was hurt and had to be taken to the hospital. Sammy shrieked, bolted for the door, and ran across a footbridge and down a narrow path to the creek. Our suspicions were confirmed. His most recent visit to the hospital was neither harmless nor forgotten. Sammy's behavior told us that this game was potentially overwhelming for him. Sammy's parents brought him back from the creek. He clung frantically to his mother as we prepared for another game. We reassured him that we would all be there to help protect Pooh Bear. Again, he ran, but this time only to the next room. We followed him in there and waited to see what would happen next. Sammy ran to the bed, hit it with both arms while looking at me expectantly. Mad, huh? I said. He gave me a look that confirmed my question. Interpreting his expression as a go-ahead sign, I put Pooh Bear under a blanket and placed Sammy on the bed next to him. Sammy, let's all help Pooh Bear. I held Pooh Bear under the blanket and asked everyone to help. Sammy watched with interest but soon got up and ran to his mother. With his arms held tightly around her legs, he said, Mommy, I'm scared. Without pressuring him, we waited until Sammy was ready and willing to play the game again. The next time, Grandma and Pooh Bear were held down together, and Sammy actively participated in their rescue. When Pooh Bear was freed, Sammy ran to his mother, clinging even more tightly than before. He began to tremble and shake in fear. Polar Bear, tremble and shake in fear. And then his chest opened up in a growing sense of excitement, triumph, and pride. The next time he held on to his mommy, there was less clinging and more excited jumping, changing of that energy. We waited until Sammy was ready to play again. Everyone except Sammy took a turn being rescued with Pooh. Each time, Sammy became more vigorous as he pulled off the blankets and escaped into the safety of his mother's arms. They're rewriting the story for him. When it was Sammy's turn to be held under the blanket with Pooh Bear, he became quite agitated and fearful. He ran back to his mother's arms several times before he was able to accept the ultimate challenge. Bravely, he climbed under the blankets with Pooh while I held the blanket gently down. I watched his eyes grow wide with fear, but only for a moment. Then he grabbed Pooh Bear, shoved the blankets away, and flung himself into his mother's arms. Sobbing and trembling, he screamed, Mommy, get me out of here. Mommy, get this thing off of me. His startled father told me that those were the same words Sammy screamed while imprisoned in the papoose at the hospital. He remembered this clearly because he had been quite surprised by his son's ability to make such a direct, well-spoken demand at two-plus years of age. We went through the escape several more times. Each time, Sammy exhibited more power and more triumph. 
Instead of running fearfully to his mother, he jumped up excitedly, up and down. With every successful escape, we all clapped and danced together, cheering, yay for Sammy, yay, yay, Sammy saved Pooh Bear. Two-and-a-half-year-old Sammy had achieved mastery over the experience that had shattered him a few months earlier. Wouldn't that be nice to have someone who has this awareness, this understanding of how our bodies work, to take a little Sammy? Because what would have happened to that energy if he didn't get a chance to process through it? What do you think he might have been labeled at in school when he's, a when he's anxious, active, can't sit still? ADHD. There's lots of labels they can throw on there. If parents didn't understand this, now they're going, we just have a defiant kid. We better tighten down the screws, right? And so you now have this energetic, this conflict that's all going on there. When you know people's story, their behavior makes sense. It's just amazing. I want you to listen to um, a tornado story, okay? This is Joplin, Missouri. Again, listen for the symptoms. This is just profound. We're going now to Joplin, Missouri. A third of the town was destroyed by a tornado last May. 162 people were killed. The storm lasted just minutes, but the psychological damage is still unfolding, including for Joplin's children, whose young eyes saw an unimaginable tragedy. Frank Morris of member station KCUR has their story. Just months ago, Allie Stout was cowering in a hallway beneath her parents and a violently flapping mattress as the monster tornado ripped her house apart from around them. In seconds, the three-year-old's world flipped upside down. Room gone, toys gone, parents hurt, dog missing. Weeks ago, she was still playing tornado all the time. We spin around in circles, and we get a new house, and the line does, and it's blasting off, and we have to run again. Allie's mom, Tiffany Stout, says her daughter slips into this grim play in groups and alone here in the family's freshly furnished but sparsely decorated new house. It's nothing for us to go by her room and hear her telling her babies that it's time to take cover and they have to lay down on the floor and put their hands over their heads and hold on tight and pray for God's protection and pray that they make it through the storm. It's not easy, Stout says. Seeing your darling girl relive the worst moments of her life over and over and over again. But apparently it's normal. As adults, we often talk things through. Right? Um, a child, particularly younger children, will play things through. Charles Graves is a psychiatrist treating kids in Joplin. Mostly you see signs and symptoms of fear. So they may be agitated, angry. Most shake it off in a few weeks. Others struggle with mental illness. Either way, Graves says, that early trauma undermines a kid's ability to cope with stress later. The more bad things that have happened to you, the worse off you are. The pump has been primed. That goes for adults, too. Some here have lost almost everything. Homes, jobs, loved ones. Most are holding up okay, but not all. And when they don't, children can get hurt. There's been a fairly significant increase in sexual trauma to children. Vicki Measler is vice president for clinical services at the Ozark Center. There's been an increase in drug and alcohol abuse. There's been an increase in ga serious gambling issues, like taking your insurance check and losing it in one night at a casino, which has happened here multiple times. So some kids who have managed to cope well with the tornado are being traumatized by adults who have not. Measler figures maybe seven or eight hundred more children here will need therapy, and she's building just the place for it. 
On a ridge overlooking miles of splintered trees in the beaten shell of a hospital, workers are turning this tornado-hammered building into a child's trauma center. This is a healing place. This is a place where you come to feel better. But that healing can be slow to come. It only takes 30 seconds to destroy your life and your home and your, your community and the, the outlines of everything that you know. But it stays with you forever. That's Carolyn Brewer. 54 years ago, when she was seven, an F5 tornado obliterated her neighborhood. Now, Ruskin Heights, Missouri, shows virtually no sign of the catastrophe. But Brewer says the memories are still raw. She interviewed dozens of her childhood neighbors for a book called Caught Ever After. Many of them are still afraid. In fact, a woman sent me an email a couple of weeks ago that said, um, I still have nightmares where the tornado is chasing me and it has eyes and it's looking for me specifically. That's after more than half a century. Back in Joplin, not four months have passed since the tornado. Allie has turned four, and Tiffany Stout says both her kids are getting better, though it doesn't take much to set them off. Um, it can be anything from being outside and the wind blowing hard to the sky getting dark, and instantly they ask if the tornado's coming back and if our house is going to get blown away again and um, if we're going to get hurt. Stout says while her family will never be the same, she says their post-tornado life is better in a lot of ways, more gratitude, more time for each other. Even the lucky ones in Joplin are continuing to grapple with the psychological fallout that often remains long after the twister moves on. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris. What did you hear in that story? How, do, how does the little, that little voice, oh man, she's just a cutie, huh? Three years old, how is she playing afterwards? Reenacting the tornado, yep. You can hear her in her bedroom, it's time to take cover, it's time to pray. She spins around playing tornado. She gets triggered when the skies get dark. And she turns to her mommy and says, do we need to go hide again? Because for a little three-year-old, that's what makes sense. But the other piece that's even more important is adults who haven't dealt with their trauma history, when they're put into another overwhelming, naturally scary experience, they get re-triggered and they start to act out again. So an increase in sexual uh, trauma, increase in gambling, increase in addiction, all that stuff gets started gets lit up again and played. Uh, I have another friend who went down to um, New Orleans uh, after Hurricane Katrina, and they dealt mostly not with um, hurricane trauma, but with earlier trauma, because the hurricane triggered or restarted all of the childhood stuff. And so they'd come in and people were going, I can't stop dreaming about what happened to me back here 20, 25, 30 years ago. I can't, the dreams just keep coming back. And they have to deal with the early stuff before they deal with the hurricane stuff. Just amazing, just amazing. Um, that was an actual picture of the tornado. That was actually Joplin, Missouri's tornado. Massive, massive tornado. Here's, here's the last piece though. Here's why I started with Quigley Down Under, okay? Can we do one more video here? Chelsea, you were just amazing. Thanks for doing this juggling act. Here's, it's hard to see. Pause it real fast, I'm sorry. He, she's hanging out in a cave because Quigley has rid, rid, ridden off, okay? He's gotten on a horse and rode away to the nearest town to get supplies because he knows the bad guy's coming after them. And so she's, he's asked her just to wait in the cave um, and take care of this little um, baby that they found, an aboriginal baby, um, because his parents were killed by Marsden's men. And so she's in a cave 
at night with this little helpless baby um, waiting for Quigley, who she calls Roy, okay, to return. We have a perfect setup of what? Very good. Okay, let's see what happens. Don't cry. Daddy'll be home soon. is just mean of them. <sighs> but do you see how she wrote a different ending to her story? She started to slip into the old pattern. Be quiet, be quiet, even to the point of almost smothering or, you know, hand over the baby's mouth. And when that baby said, I don't have nothing to do with that, it kicked in. She goes, wait a second, I'm not actually in that situation. And so let's do the exact opposite. You cry, baby, you cry. And she starts singing, singing and shooting. It's a great way to process trauma. It's a fantastic way to process trauma. Talk about empowerment, okay? 30 seconds, I'm going to wrap this up, okay? Because I know it's now 9 o'clock and I want to honor your time. So what does this mean for you, okay? Very first thing, good first step. If trauma is your story, if trauma is what you're aware now that's kept you stuck, it's, it's that energy that's not going anywhere, the very first thing, the best thing to do is going to be simply acknowledging that 
you might not be doing as good as you think you are or as good as you are, you are able to maintain. A lot of people who are traumatized know that what's going on inside is not what they are demonstrating outside. Finding, finding a safe place where you can start that conversation. You don't have to disclose your entire story. You don't have to give all the gritty details. All you need to be able to do is say, I think I've got some trauma and I'm not doing as good as I let on. And if you have a space, a place that is safe to do that, that's not gonna judge you, that's not gonna try to fix you right away, and it will go, okay, welcome. Let me tell you our story as well. And you can now walk through that with somebody. That's the very, very first step. Second step, reconnecting with your physical body, okay? Again, a lot of times you just try to go into the mental space, the head space of going, I gotta figure out why this happened, I gotta have explanations, but I don't actually want to re-experience it. I don't wanna have those sensations anymore. I don't wanna have that trembling or that shaking or that sweaty feeling or that throw up feeling or that really, really scary feeling. I don't wanna do that. And so I try to distance myself from my physical body as much as possible. This is an invitation for you to understand that's okay, that's actually normal. If you look like that polar bear, if you look like Sammy who's shaking and trembling, if you need to yell and scream and, and shoot things, okay, don't do that in an unsafe environment. If you need to go somewhere, okay, find the right place to do that. <laughs> Hear me very clearly, very clearly about that, okay? Find the right environment to process through it, but process through it, okay? Reconnect with your body, and then third, not just find a group, okay? That, the first step is about finding, finding a group where you can be safe. The third step is about finding a particular individual, finding someone that can actually help and understands how trauma works and can go, I'm gonna walk with you through this. I'm gonna show you, here's what's the next step and here's what's the next step and here's how we're gonna keep you safe and here's how we're going to set up an environment where you won't get overwhelmed and here's something you might try because one of the things you might not know is I don't actually know what I'm supposed to be doing. This is all new to me and it's freaking me out. So someone who understands trauma and can work through that with you, incredibly important, incredibly important. And then finally, you have permission to be intense for a season. One of the reasons I hear most commonly that people go, I don't wanna do this is because they've already been stuck in a helpless and immobile state and they're, uh, they're uh, making the assumption, if I start to feel these intense feelings, I'm gonna get stuck there as well. And if I have a choice between really, really intense feelings to be stuck in, or really, really numb, disconnected feelings, that's a no-brainer, I'm gonna take the numb one. I wanna be the guy who tells you, you will not get stuck. If you intentionally step into the space, you are gonna be intense, but only for a season, only for a short time. We heal, we grow, we get better. It's remarkable. It's remarkable that we're built to do that. It might be time. It might be time for some of you to go, I'm now done. I'm now done trying to recreate this or figure this out on my own. And I am willing to step into a little scary space for a short time. You don't have to step into it alone. You don't have to. Okay? Okay, deep breath. Did this make sense? you kind of understanding how fear and immobility and how to work through it, not just by talking about it, by writing a different ending to the story. That's what's available for you guys.
Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like more information, please visit paulelmore.com.